Dude, what are you? You're on like 45 uh, different medicines over here. Yeah. I got an ear infection swimming in a cave in Mexico. I mean, of all the <laughs> of all the infections you could have got on your Mexican <laughs> vacation, <laughs> ear is pretty good. It's true. <laughs> it's true. There are much worse infections you can get from Mexico. Yeah, I dove into a cave. I jumped off of a cliff. It was one of those two things. I jumped off of a bridge in Abu Dhabi, and that was the first time my left ear started bothering me. That was like five years ago, and ever since then, it just sometimes I might have done structural damage to it. I'm so not now sure. Every time you jump off something into water, <laughs> you have to deal with this. You would think I would learn my lesson, but it was fun. It was worth it. Cave diving was actually really cool. It's like there was times when I was big too. Everyone was like, "How is Sam going to make it through that?" <laughs> and you're like kind of facing the up and you have to like the cave comes you basically almost go underwater and like hold your breath but it's very tight and it's like kind of claustrophobic is it dark it's completely pitch black well he has a headlamp on your guide but a couple times you turn it off and then it's just like it's pitch black also there's like bats down there so then he turns it on and you're looking up and there's like a hole and there's like eight bats just hanging out it it was worth it oh it was so awesome it was like the coolest thing we did oh cool they also have a part because like there's jaguars in Mexico and they go in these caves sometimes. And there's this one part where you turn the girls went first and he said, Oh, what's that? And he's shown the light over there and they have like a, like a, like a, you know, paper mache or whatever it is, <laughs> ceramic Jaguar, like right there. And they screamed so loud. It was so funny. I was like pretty impressed that they would do that. It was pretty good, but it was pretty freaky too. You're down there and there's this like life size, you know, model Jaguar staring at you. It's pretty cool, though. Nice. It was fun. Water's, like, super clear, you know. Um, there's, like, pigmentless fish down there and all that kind of stuff. There's lots of little fish that start nibbling at your feet, the kind that they have in spas. So you're just, like, hanging out in there, and then They're you like see a group of them. Feet. Yeah, and one of them gets bold enough to take a bite, and then he's like, oh, I like that. And then all of them just start kind of going on your feet. It's pretty gnarly. Is there like, there's not a chance of like damage here? No, right? no, no, okay. no. Although I do follow this account on Twitter called Nature is Scary, and they showed this group of fish destroying like this octopus. And I'm glad I saw that after I got back from Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was a good trip though. I didn't get sunburn. I learned how to use sunscreen. Nice. Now I just have to learn how to not get an, an ear infection. <laughs> You've been working on some stuff this week? Yeah, I've been doing a, a bunch of ember rails development i feel like i hit like a lot of a lot of a lot of issues but i got a lot of like good things to talk about out of it so mm-hmm. um figure we could go through some of those what's your overall opinion of the week like thumbs up or thumbs down on technology and being oh, a programmer? Thumb, thumbs up okay cool thumbs cool. up yeah so it's not like a bunch I of got, rants I'm, it's not i like, mean i mean i can still rant about it <laughs> sure right? but it's not you weren't frustrated overall you were like ex- excited by what you were working on yeah. and the progress you made yes cool for sure um, I guess the first thing it's like we we had this conversation earlier in the week, but it was super valuable for me. Was um, uh, we had upgraded uh an Ember app. It was like three three one or three zero, and we went to three four. We just did to the next LTS, and we um we used some of your your workflow of basically upgrading all the add-ons first because add-ons are really good at being backwards compatible. Mm-hmm. Then um, upgrading like the Ember things and then kind of dealing with with any deprecation warnings from there. Uh, and I, I, I ran a situation that I, I haven't run into before, which is all the add-ons upgraded, or at least the ones that we could, um, upgraded all the Ember stuff, that went fine. And there were um, some add-ons that we couldn't upgrade because they were they aren't maintained anymore, mm. and um, so when so when you run Yarn Upgrade Interactive, these add-ons don't show up because there is no new version to upgrade to. Uh, but they started throwing. So you're on latest. What's the yeah, problem? On, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're on latest. It's just from 2016. <laughs> um, so we we got those upgraded, and then I ran the test suite, and they started throwing a whole bunch of deprecations, and uh, I I had a question that that there was a discussion where it's like what do you do in this situation these add-ons are unmaintained do you like fork the add-on fix the deprecations and then point your package.json at the fork you know there's trade-offs there Mm -hmm. or do you just ignore the deprecations and basically like 
this at some point will break my app. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm not going to worry about it because it's like out of my control because this add-on is unmaintained. And there's there's definitely trade-offs with that one. Mm-hmm. Um, Just to be a little more concrete, let's say an add-on used to send action, which was a conventional best practice in 2016, and send action, the API, which is an internal API to Ember, is deprecated. And so just to, yeah, that's that's within, it's the add-on is calling to an Ember API that has become deprecated. Yes, exactly. And that, that was actually an example of this. Um, in 3.1, it's totally fine to call send action. Uh, but in 3.4, send action throws a deprecation and send action will be removed from the framework in, in 4.0. So you start seeing messages that say, my old add-on is calling send action yes, in exactly. your console. Exactly. And for like big add-ons, that have like a lot of this, they, they very quickly overwhelm your console. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So my initial thing was like, Oh, this send action is a really like easy thing to fix. You mm-hmm. just find where it's calling send action and you invoke the, the method. Mm-hmm. Um, so right. it's like a pretty straightforward fix. I don't really have to understand the add on to fix that. There's no like architectural change there. Um, so my initial reaction was, okay, I'll just fork this add on, fix all this and then point our package.json at, the forked add-on which is like under our repo under mm-hmm. our control mm-hmm. um, but you had a good point about this um why i shouldn't do that which was <laughs> <laughs> so now i'm learning i probably shouldn't take your advice no you said that it becomes as, your responsibility yeah yeah as yeah. soon as i do that now i'm on the hook for maintaining this add-on right it reminds me of what katie said during our interview which is basically when she sees an add-on that doesn't have tests she considers it something that she'll eventually have to maintain. This is like another version of that, even if it has tests, but it's already become unmaintained. If you're going to continue to rely on it, then it becomes your responsibility. Yeah. So the other option there that since I don't want to maintain this add on, I mean, really I can't maintain that. This is like well, a, a and the other, right. And the other way we had thought about it was like fast forward a couple of years, like go to the logical conclusion of this when Ember four is out, like, what do you do then? So that kind of tells you, this duct tape solution or the temporary fix of forking it and stuff. If, if there's not an owner who is actively merging PRs to fix things like that, then it's just going to be, you know, a losing game sooner or later. Yeah. 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 Take it to its logical conclusion. I mean, I guess if Ember four came out and there was some feature in Ember four that like we needed to take advantage of, I would, I would fork the add on. Um, I think, you know, from like being a good, a good developer, I think getting off this add-on would right. be a blocker for upgrading to 4.0. Right, right, now, right. In reality, things don't always work out like that. But um, basically, that's the alternative is yeah. to like refactor away from the add-on. Yep. Now, for today, this week, I couldn't refactor away from mm-hmm. this add-on. That was, mm-hmm. you know, we needed to get to three, four for some stuff, um, you know, and yeah, it's a big add-on. It's used in multiple places. Yeah, and I was uncomfortable refactoring away this week. Right. What I ended up doing was ignoring the um, deprecations and I was you know I was a little like on the fence about this because I was worried that like hey these are like warning you about problems that you're gonna you're definitely gonna face in the future and you're just hiding this and, and we've some, talked before about sorry I mean to cut you off well I was gonna say someone's gonna go upgrade to 4.0 yeah and the app is just gonna not work yeah and they're gonna be like why isn't this working yeah we've talked before about also treating like warnings as errors yeah you know yes and that's something I think that's like an, an ideal and something that you can, when it comes to the pragmatics, you can pursue in various degrees, depending on the constraints of your situation and the team you're working on, the app you're working on. Yeah. And, you know, I think like in this situation, yeah, I definitely can make a good case for getting off this add on, treating these warnings as errors, especially because like we don't this this team that I'm working with, we don't want this to bite us right in, in the random future when 4.0 gets released so we know about this now we can basically plan out over the next year a point to refactor it Mm -hmm. so yeah so that was your solution so then how did you communicate the knowledge that you've done this thing yeah so the future developer x who's going to be responsible for upgrading so two things one is um in our like project management software i made a ticket upgrading to ember 4.0 and i said <laughs> don't worry ember 4.0 isn't out yet right um, but when we do upgrade this is going to be the card that who's ever working on this is going to take on and and here's what you need to know mm-hmm. and i referenced that 
this add-on has its deprecations ignored. Mm-hmm. Um, it's broken or it's unmaintained. Here's like a link to the PR that fixes it. But since it's unmaintained, that PR isn't getting merged. Mm-hmm. If it does get merged, mm-hmm. this thing can just, this comment can just disappear. Right. Um, so that's, that's a way of just kind of communicating to the team. I also found and used um, Ember deprecation workflow, which is an add-on by uh, Mixonic, Matt, and uh, it's awesome. It, it lets you run your test suite. It captures all the deprecations. So just stepping back a little yeah. bit, the first thing is that when you start hitting these deprecations, your console fills up. And even if it's just one API that's being used, if the a- if like a component is being called a million times, your console is going to get overwhelmed with like these warning errors and yeah. messages that are basically not actionable from your perspective. And we write an acceptance. We write a lot of acceptance tests. Mm-hmm. So every acceptance test that hits this page that's using this add-on is going to fill the the console. So yeah, right. it's it's overwhelming. So um, the the dep- deprecation workflow was originally created, I think, from one thirteen to to two. Yep. Um, or one twelve to one thirteen, maybe because of all the deprecations that were introduced, and it just helps teams go through them systematically so yeah so you run your test suite you get you know your console fills up with deprecation warnings uh they give you a command that you run and it generates a config file that you then drop into ember cli and then now the next time you run your test suite based on that configuration file it's just going to hide all those deprecation warnings and so you can open up um you can open up this uh config file and you can kind of see okay, here's all the deprecations. And it's not, every deprecation is just one entry in this config file. So no matter how many times the components rendered, just one entry. Mm -hmm. Um, We probably had thousands of console-worn deprecation Mm -hmm. warnings. There were literally two deprecations. Yeah. So um, that's pretty good. Yeah. So (laughs) uh, it's nice. It lets you configure, like, should this deprecation be shown? Should it be hidden? Should it throw an error? Mm. Um, So it's really nice. You can... The, the workflow here is you can now tackle these deprecations one at a time. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll get into kind of that in a second. Cool. Um, but yeah, it's, it's great that you have this, this configuration file. I also referenced that in the, um, the, the ticket that, you know, for upgrading. It's mm-hmm. basically like when you're going to go to upgrade to 4.0, just be aware that this is what, what we're hiding. Yep. Um, so the workflow is you now go into this file. Everything's hidden. And you can just take the first deprecation you see and you can change it to throw so it like fails your test. I changed it to um, log or warn. Whatever. I think it's a log. So I could see it in the console, but I knew that this was the only one I was going to see. And also when it logs, it takes up less space. It just does one line that you can open up. So it's, it's a little less, um, no, even sure. though you're going to get a lot of them, it's a little less overwhelming. Uh, and yeah, and I went through and I kind of, you know, originally there's like send action mm-hmm. deprecation is um, it's like send action. I don't just want to hide all the send actions because if send action is coming from this add on, right. this unmaintained add on. Yeah, I want to ignore that one. But if send action is coming from our app. Right. I want to um, I want to fix that. Right. So I kind of went through them, figured out the ones that were coming from our app, uh, fix those. And then in the um, the deprecation thing, you can actually like hide based on the message. Mm. So um, I put the name of the add-on in the message. Because it's part of the message. Because it's part oh, of the cool. message. So that way, if any developer oh, uses send cool. action, they'll get the deprecation warning. So I thought that was awesome. Once I kind of cleaned this up and yep. I got this, I was like, okay, I'm only going to hide these. Yep. Um, That's great. Yeah, you can match against a regex string. It's so like you, catching a known error, basically. Yeah. Yep. And letting other errors still yes. bubble. Yep. Cool. And then I kind of like just went through this file. I said there were two warnings. So the send action was the first and the other was, um, I think like Ember, Ember, like Ember had like a copyable mix in Mm. and that's now been moved to an, it's still in the framework, but it throws a warning. Ah. It's now been moved to an add on and that was super easy to fix. So I changed all those to log, found the places we were using copyable and you just import it. You install an add on, you import copyable from the add on and that's it. You're done. What does that do? That was a it's, first party mixin. Yeah, it's I think it's like um it's like object assign or object merge into like an empty hash. It just copies gotcha. the properties. Gotcha. We were using it. I think there's like a batch update 
mm. adapter thing mm. that was using it to like copy props out I see. to post. Um, it's pretty cool. I didn't actually have to understand. That is cool. What was going on? Very cool. You know, I knew the fix. I found the fix in the deprecation guides. Had the log in the um, in the uh, uh, deprecation workflow. Got mm-hmm. them all fixed, and I could just delete that line. That's great. So this the workflow. Yeah. Like this workflow of tackling one deprecation at a time, and going through of like log and then tweaking the the regex mm-hmm. to match what you want pretty awesome workflow like when i got done with this i was like man that felt really good you always knew what the next step was and you yep. weren't just hit with like oh i'm just gonna ignore all this like console mess yeah it's really cool yeah and by the end of the day I, there's no more deprecations in amp that's, and that's awesome. not true there are deprecations they're just hidden yeah 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 exactly but yeah there's no more deprecations that like the dev team needs to worry about right right because the ones that are there they're out of our control the actionable ones were taken care of yep. and then the non-actionable ones were hidden yeah and it's really, it's like, um, that's awesome. Workflow is such a good word yeah. to describe this add-on because it's like, yeah, it's like you said, there's actual items, there's next steps. You're never like, oh boy, got to Google what to do here. Let me find like this old GitHub issue. There's, there's none of that. It's like very, um, it's almost like a therapeutic. Mm-hmm. It's just, you just therapeutic kinda, refactoring or yeah. whatever. Yeah. You just go through this and yeah. you get done and you're like, man, this is like. It's cleaned up. You cleaned house. Yeah. It's also just amazing the the fact that that you have that cohesive story across the whole ecosystem. You know, I know that's something I would miss and have missed every time I've not worked in Ember. Even though add-ons are written by different people, we have that unified deprecate helper and so that enables tools like this. You know, it's really cool. Yeah. I had some other thoughts when you were speaking earlier. One is um like if you find yourself in this situation where you're using something that's deprecated like you know, sometimes we talk about code debt and and technical debt and you know there's kind of different takes on that and it's like if you know glimmer components come out and they're the new way to do it does that mean all of our you know component that extend code is like tech debt well like you could certainly argue that but on the other hand it's like um that code works and you know we kind of believe in refactoring as part of uh work that we're doing we don't really think you should as much as possible have like a refactoring task that you have to explain the value of to your product manager. You should just be doing that as it makes sense. And as you're working on something that's painful. So like there's an argument that those old style components are not tech debt. Right. Um, whereas this feels like truly tech debt. Like if you're are relying on an add on that has like basically a, a, a lifespan that's like ticking down, it's debt. It's just, because it's and it could continue to work until a certain point in time when you know it's not going to and no one's maintaining that that's like that feels like tech debt in in like the most real sense of the word yeah um and you could imagine explaining the value of like refactoring away that to like your team as opposed to like most kind of mundane refactoring and and test writing all that should be like bundled up with a feature i think um i you know i i 100 percent agree i think you should always go into those conversations with like that this is a value that it adds to the project. Right. So I would still have kind of that in my right my back pocket. It might be something like, look, well, we why all, are we upgrading now yeah, to four? Yes. And it's because of X. And right. so this is a part of that. And it could also be something like, look, through the history of this application, we've always wanted to upgrade as new versions come out. Right. Because new versions unlock new things. And right. we don't necessarily know what 4.0 is going to unlock right but we know we don't want to be blocked for six months right and so to keep the dev workflow right you know moving forward right and i think most people will will buy that again i still like to tie it to a feature Mm -hmm. i mean it's still awesome when you can say look and this is you user the application this is what you'll be allowed to do right um totally yeah maybe like using ember animated and you couldn't do that before because you're on some older version and so now you can tie that to something right and you and you know it's like if your if your like backlog is full of like upgrade database, yes. upgrade servers, change deployment, like that's just going to overwhelm the non technical users of your team, and it's going to push them out of yeah. any sort of like roadmapping conversation. Um, so I think like one or two of these, like oh, we need to get rid of deprecations, and it's like one thing that that's that's kind of on its own is is a lot easier or ideally attached as like a checklist item of a feature that's that's like the ideal workflow is definite definitely that that's a great 
that's a really great point. I know this is all stuff that I learned from you when we started working together, but I think it's super important for people to hear this because um, if you are complaining that your boss is not giving you time to write tests or refactor or clean up tech debt, it's that's on you, buddy. That's not on your boss. That's your responsibility uh, as a professional to know um, how to you know estimate the total cost of a new feature and how to keep things clean and like. The idea that you're going to get all this time set aside to to do refactoring or tests like maybe every once in a while people do that during like a hack day or something but that's not a good part of a healthy normal development workflow. yeah nights and weekends yeah exactly <laughs> seriously <laughs> exactly the other um one other thing here was that um if the if the add-on is not ever going to be changed you know that's a pretty rare situation where you're like okay we just need this pr merge to account for send action and the person's just completely fallen off the map. I know Ember has an adopted add-ons repository. I think even one of our old add-ons that we weren't working on anymore, but that other people were still relying on is in there. And um, that's a very important thing that's turned out to be good because it's just funny. If you have like, you know, Ember map slash Ember collapsible panel, it's just like that's someone else's thing, but a lot of people are using that. If it's like an adopted add-on, people are going to be much more likely to, to contribute to it because they're not, it doesn't feel like you're just doing someone else's dirty work. You know, yeah. you're not taking out someone else's trash. Like you're doing open source contribution. Well, also too, adopted add-ons repo has a whole bunch of people with commit access. Yes. Where yes. Ember map doesn't, even though we would grant it to people. Right. That's just, we would, don't want to block all of them on right. that stuff. Someone would have to like do the work. They would PR it, ask for commit. We'd give it to them. But this other adopted add-ons is like, it's inverted. People have commit. Right add-on show up there they fix them so yeah right that's actually a good action item for me i should if the person is not responsive then like bring it up with the learning team and the people doing the adopted add-on stuff and see if you can get it moved over there because that would be the easiest thing yeah and then also like related to our conversation on upgrading like i think the way you handled it is makes sense because you know do you immediately do all the work to like get off the thing no do you like fork it immediately i think opening the issue it and um you know someone else it could be solved upstream in some way and so if you're an app developer who is crunched um often like you'll revisit these sorts of things in a month and there'll be something a code mod thing that can help or a polyfill maybe there's like a a send action polyfill that even if you went to four you install that and it actually doesn't block you so you know there's there's things like that that can come about great 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 point yeah this add-on, although it's a deprecation, is still works today. Right. And there's a big buffer of time right. for some solution to get unstuck. Right. Yeah. Exactly. The last thing that it made me think of was, um, you know, one thing we've talked about with the upgrades is like, it, I mean, this has even happened with projects that we basically have full control over. And it's like, you don't want upgrades to be a big deal. And if you come across something that's just a showstopper like this, and now you have an issue that's like upgrade Ember 4 and you have a to-do item on it that's like, oh, by the way, whoever gets stuck with this is going to have to deal with my fancy widget add-on that's like completely busted and used everywhere. Now it feels like maybe people will start adding things to that list and the chore of upgrading from 3 to 4 is going to become bigger and bigger and that's actually exactly what we want to avoid. Like we want our tools and our community practices should be encouraging people to do things as continuously and ongoing as possible to make event upgrades like a non-event basically that's like where the upgrade process comes in dependabot comes in backwards compatibility comes in incremental adoption i think it's like super important we're still figuring that out and we still haven't nailed that but um that's like something else i just thought of so like um it's it's good to have all to have an answer for every contingency that fits in this process you know that's a great point it's a really good point because I could totally see this this upgrading to four blossoming. Yeah, and so it's almost like you want, yeah, maybe this like also gets put out in another task and right. Maybe the polyfill thing is like ideally you want a way that's like deals with it today that doesn't block anyone on anything in the future, yeah. so that everything can just nothing piles up, you know. Um, but all that to say, I think everything we discussed is like pretty good solution and like just makes me grateful too that we're in a community that values that stuff. So that's basically taken care of for us. Um, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I know even you've told me stories of like Rails upgrades back in the day. You'd set aside like weeks and it's just, it's not what you want ideally. No. And it also like going back to like the product people and the customers and your users, 
It's the last thing they want yes. here. They have a, yes. a, a list that's two miles long of features they want built. Exactly. Tell them uh, you're upgrading. Yeah. Exactly. Wait, are we allowed to swear <laughs> yeah. on this? I'll use the, I'll use, I actually love using that bleep <laughs> sensor in Final Cut Pro. Nice. <laughs> um, it'll just make you sound like a total badass. Um, the Imagine being a product person who's worked on teams and you, you come to one now. You look back and you realize you've been doing product work for two years and the dev team never asked you to stop to like migrate a database or upgrade that. That's an awesome feeling. You want that, you know, for your team. Yeah, I've noticed on teams I've been on that have that. It's also like you talk about like like inclusivity and getting ideas from everyone on the team. When you have a bunch of things in the backlog that are dev related, the, yeah. the people that aren't developers show up to those meetings and their eyes just gloss yeah. over yes. and they check out. It's wrong. It's wrong to bring that and, stuff to those meetings. Yeah. It's totally and, wrong. And so getting folks all speaking the same language yes. is just yes. so powerful. Yes. And as a developer, like you actually want other people's input because you're going to go, you don't know what, you're going to go off and build the wrong thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, yes. this helps you, the developer, like, massively yep so yeah yep absolutely that's cool that's cool i know you have some more stuff um while you pull it up i don't know how long this is but you know i've been working with uh, a team one of the teams we work with and um one of the designers actually uh knows you know quite a bit about uh handlebars and um like basic javascript stuff and um He's like firmly a designer, but he's in the Ember code base. He runs it locally and he um, is able to like design in HTML and CSS. And when the Ember engineers take it over, it's like basically ready to go from the static template. Not even just static. It has like JavaScript arrays, let's say. So the engineer's job, the Ember engineer's job is like wiring up to the real data calls and dealing with the asynchronicity and the action handling and all that stuff. But I was really surprised and impressed by that too. It's like if people can design and do the stuff we do, like what's going to be left for us? Yeah, well, that, that <laughs> I think uh, whatever episodes ago, we talked about how um, like design is a super valuable skill. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of like proof of that, mm -hmm. that like the engineering stuff is going away or it's, mm -hmm. or at least right. there's a middle ground they can share. Right. Yeah. I thought that was really cool. And it's also like, I know Steve, uh, Shogur has been learning tailwind in HTML and CSS. And so if designers are starting to like do their job in these tools, you know, it's pretty interesting when you come from the development side, you're like, start using sketch. You're like, Oh, this is so cool. It's so much easier. Why can't I just make it work here? And it's almost like, uh, you see the limitations of your tool and you want the benefits of sketch. You know, the Steve's of the world are living and breathing in sketch. And then they see the limitations of those tools and they really want, Oh, I really want to just see what it looks like in a browser when I resize the window. So I'm just going to use that. So that I, I found that interesting. And if more and more designers are trying to use like higher fidelity tooling, that's like closer to actual the code. It kind of made me, it made me question if my, my, mental guess my mental prediction about the future of building uis looks very different it was true or not i mean maybe there's like this middle ground of yeah this middle tooling that's code behind know. like wind yeah. forms <laughs> <laughs> you drag a table but then you can double click it and you just see all the code for it hey not 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 complaining actually you know what actually that's actually not even that far off because if you look at the swift ui i follow this guy who's doing a course on swift ui and it's just ridiculous and he has like the thing right here and over here you know and it's not like sketch in the way that it's like drag and drop vector but you actually do like you you do like command space and you say i want like a 3d rotate and you drag it on your card and then the code appears here and you like hover it's like interactive code it's like living code it's really cool so like maybe that's closer because you know he's he he obviously is technically literate but i don't think he has done a bunch of engineering but he's able to tweak the parameters and so, stuff that basically i think any designer would be capable of learning nice. so that's pretty interesting but um yeah they have this designer that works locally they have their app pointing to production data for helping him build the dynamic pieces and so I asked about that, of course, because um, I work in Mirage and I'm so curious because this is like one use case for it. Um, and it's always this tension between like 
you know, the production data is the highest fidelity. Even sometimes when we work on Ember map, we proxy to production because I just want to see what it looks like with my little code change. But then it's also very nice to use Mirage so that you can say, oh, let me just give me a subscribed user, give me a, an anonymous user. And if you're proxying to production, that can be hard for a variety of reasons, especially if you're working on like a data-driven app that has like n different scenarios and you need to create something just for you. So um, that just made me want even more there to be like one way to do it and for there not to be this trade-off where it's like, oh, I would use Mirage, but it's like annoying to maintain this stuff. Like what if there's just an easier way even a UI for defining these data scenarios or ingesting them from production and then just tweaking them and throwing it away, something like that. I think that would be such a cool future, I think, yeah. you know? Yes. But he felt very empowered. He, he said it was the best setup he's ever had as a designer. Um, having the local environment that's proxying to production and it worked out in such a way that the production data was basically what he needed to do his job and he was very happy with it. So he didn't have that pain point. I kind of asked if there's times where... Um, production data doesn't have the scenario you need to, to design and he said when it is doesn't happen often when it does i'll just make like a local javascript object with like the properties i need cool do you see i think that can break down in a lot of apps where it's complex and yes. relationships and stuff like that but for him that worked do you do you see him becoming more of an ember developer or do you see like a hard boundary that like no he's never going to write like component code yeah like what it, what are your thoughts that's a there? good question because when he told me he was like writing passing javascript objects into his like templates and stuff um you know and and, and i was like oh, okay he's like not just a designer like i don't say that disparagingly but he's he's also I just admit uh, you hate designers <laughs> he's also i hate them because they can do something i have a hard time with he also is like doing front-end development he, he was um and he was like adding new routes and stuff like that so he basically is like a lightweight front-end developer at this point right and so then the question is like how many designers are like this or will be like this versus him maybe just being more of a um like a polyglot you know when it comes to his skill set in this world so um yeah it's interesting but i really would love i do think that there is a better future where the data creation story looks better and i like thinking about the constraints of building it for someone who is not a front-end developer who wants an intuitive way to create dummy scenarios, you yeah. know, because I feel like that would lead to a solution that's better for both developers and non-developers. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a designer and I would use that. So. Right, right, exactly. Cool, cool. What you got next? Anything else? Yeah, oh yeah. Oh yeah, you got a list? Um, <laughs> now we're moving to the rant portion of the podcast. <laughs> you know, I, I worked on a few different apps this week and every every app that I worked on had, it was like two apps. And it was like painfully two apps. So it was like uh, Ember front end, Node back end. Uh, two of them were Ember front ends, Rails back ends. And it's not even from the code. We talk about like two apps from like the code point of view and the complexity. Mm -hmm. But just like there's like issues on GitHub. Which repo are they in? Mm. You open a PR for the front end and for the back end. And they're related. You don't really merge one without that. Even though you could merge one without the other, they're, they're related. They're coupled to the same feature. And so that um, you end up like cross-linking, like, oh, here's the UI PR. Here's the backend PR. Mm -hmm. Like you link the GitHub tickets. Mm -hmm. There's like a project management software where you link to like the front-end ticket. You mm -hmm. link to the... And it's just, it made me think like, um, oh, the deployment process so that mm. even though like we have automatic deploy, so as soon as you merge a PR, it gets deployed to go actually like watch the deploys. You log into like a, an inst you log into like a dashboard for the back end, and then you I have to like log into a dashboard for the front end, and I kind of have both of them up, and I'm watching them, and it just it made me think like we're developing two apps, but it's really one. It's real at the end of the day, we're building one thing totally, and all this stuff is disconnected. And a single I, consumer. Yes. Yes. You're backing as a single consumer. Yeah. But everything, like everything from the code to the the project management, I, I just the, the GitHub workflow, it's all disconnected. Yeah. It's bad. Because you think about, if you're describing it, you would see one line that's going through. Yeah. Yeah. You I, would put a one line. The front end's, you know, merged. The back end's merged. The front end's deployed. The back end's deployed. Now we can visit the site. It's all one thing. Yes. Yes. And so just, and, and there, there are like workflows for like, doing like the zero downtime deploys mm -hmm. and we do all those mm -hmm. um to to get this right mm -hmm. but it's just the fact that 
Yeah, you're it's using leaky like abstraction. It's all yeah. le- it's leaking everywhere in terms of all these tools are made for like one repo. Yeah, one one like one what deployed. We, the way we define an app in yeah. these tools yeah. is per repo, but that's not now the way we look at these. Yeah, is we have two repos to represent one app. Right, and so yeah, right. it's 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 like I want a tool that accounts for all this. That's interesting. Um, that's yeah, interesting. It was just like it. W- it wasn't even like a code thing that was frustrating me. It was like the process and the tooling around this. Yeah. So what about like Next and Netlify, who have like n apps within a single repo that is one conceptual app? I guess they just take care of it for you because if you have like server, li- if you have like uh, cloud functions, and uh, in your root, and those get deployed as part of doing a static build of your front end and deploying it to Amazon or whatever it is, yep, the CDN. I guess you as a user, you just don't care. So that's like sure. pretty cool. And but we, you know, we've kind of talked about like, well, you make a CSS change and then like your whole backend yeah. gets deployed. Yeah. That's why you want it as yeah. like separate apps. So there's benefits to the separate app thing. Right. Um, I was kind of like just imagining like what, what I would want here. And it's like, I want something like a project management tool or board that has multiple like repos or multiple apps inside of it. And I could like cross, it's very easy to like link up to PR, like if I have a back end PR and a front end PR and they're related to the same feature, it's like I want just some mm-hmm. way to those things to be linked. I wonder if you need that flexibility or if just a mono repo would actually be better if tools like Heroku worked with subdirectories. Yeah. Because in a mono repo, you have literally no dependency drift because it's all one thing, which is kind of makes sense if you think about it because there's one consumer, one, one interface. There's mm-hmm. one interface. For one consumer, yes. So and from from the GitHub point of view, yeah, yes. Front end good. folder, back end folder. Let's say for like the Heroku thing, I'd still have like two apps, yeah, two like yeah. Heroku apps. Yeah, your back end can go down while your front end's not down. Or yeah, like that. so but like, that's like it would be hard to like overview them. Well, and think I, about a Rails app. You actually have a database server, so you have two servers. Mm-hmm. I guess Heroku does like Heroku doesn't separate those. Like the database is a, is within my Rails application, but your database could go down while your Rails server is still running. Sure. What happens then? You get 500 errors. <laughs> no, no, no. You could, but but from like uh, the workflow point of view, I would like open up the Rails app on Heroku mm. and then go into the database and see the database. Size. Okay. So okay. Group, so it's like a UI problem. You're they saying. group. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. group this as one conceptual app. It's yeah. like listed under the Rails app. Where I want like that's what you want for let's say Ember Map, and you can see okay now under Ember Map you see the front and the back end yeah. the database. You see, and and Heroku does have a way to like group multiple apps into um like an organization mm-hmm. but that it, there's some there's no that linear timeline that spans multiple servers you don't have that yeah or multiple apps you don't have that and i, I think this is going to become more of a thing interesting as we we this two app thing yeah. isn't going away yep whether it goes into mono repo or, or not it's or, because the one app has a dependency on the other app right if yes there yes, if yes, yes. if 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 it didn't, or if there were other apps that had a dependency on the back end, you'd want to potentially see the back end on its own. But in this case, because there's exactly one consumer that has a dependency on it, it doesn't make sense to look at the front end without the back end, and it doesn't make sense to look at um, yeah, back basically, without the front end. Yeah, basically, yeah, yeah, back end without the front end. So that's kind of an interesting use case. If you asked users of this application how many apps we have, they would say one. They, it's conceptually right. it's one app right and so i want to see the project management tied to both of these repos i want an easy way to cross like yeah it's just interesting so it's just one of those things is like uh, um i don't see this the problem friction. going away yeah 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 you actually SB see it getting is, bigger because of the yeah. architecture popular architecture yeah. pattern i was thinking about the dashboard app we built um react and node and we built it in React and Mirage, and then we wanted the back end, and we didn't want to just make a whole Rails server because we just didn't want to. And we also want to eventually practice sharing the Mirage logic, potentially. Um, so we just made a Node script. It's like 80 lines of code, and it powers the whole thing. It's And you know, it's in a folder, like a subdirectory of it, and how do we do deploys there? We push and it just deploys them both. There's no like dependency thing. You're right. A, we have we have we have two so two Heroku apps. No, it's one Netlify app for the, the front, front end, end, and then a Heroku app for the back end. For the and then server. each like Netlify, there's two. Uh, was it's like npm scripts 
So there's like a yarn back end and a yarn front end. Yarn front yarn end. Yarn build. Yeah. So yarn, yarn front end is like yarn build. Right. Create React app. Right. And then the back end is just like node server.js. Right. Which with production or something yeah. like that or whatever. Yep. So that's, um, but there feels a lot light, more lightweight. And then we have a database that is just within the Heroku app. And that doesn't on deploy, that doesn't, nothing changes there. With Rails, does it? What, what does Rails do when you deploy a new version? Like, let's say you push code to Rails and you mm-hmm. do it. By default, it won't change the database. It won't sh- like restart the database server. No, 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 no. What, Data, if you, made, what if you change the database in some way? So uh, it's pretty common for like deploying Rails apps on Heroku. You have a, a release phase, and Heroku has like an awesome they, their workflow. They've thought through so much of this stuff. It's it's amazing. So highly recommend reading it. But part of the release phase would be like pushing assets to a CDN mm. or running database migrations. Mm. So they give you this chunk. It's like you build your app and then with the built app, you release it. So you run the migrations and then um, you launch it. Would be like What the, about when I had the code in the node app that restarted the database and wiped it and refreshed it every I, single time I deployed? <laughs> I mean, I don't think it didn't restart the database. It just dropped all the tables oh, yeah. and created them. Yeah. So yeah, we could do that. And then every time <laughs> we deploy, we get a new, hey, stateless, stateless development. Stateless app. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Interesting. Um, I would love to get this, you know, I would love to get just this little test app that we're building to the point where it's like as close to that as possible, where it's like you could even see that as one thing. I don't know what that would look like, but I mean, that's definitely one of the the benefits of Mirage development Mm -hmm. is I don't consider that a second app. Right. I consider that part of the front end. Right. Much like the database, the database part of the back end. Yeah, exactly. Yep. um, Be interesting. What, what, what that workflow would be like. Right. Pretty cool. Yeah. Yes. I'm trying to think the the use effects stuff I learned. I was I was going to see if like I was meant to brainstorm and see if there was kind of some lessons for our Ember development there, um, because of the way the React community is treating uh, side effects and state. Um, uh, I guess one kind of interesting takeaway that I do think is relevant is I'm starting to understand more of the motivation behind the design of hooks, whereas I I didn't. I understood the composability argument, but I didn't understand some other aspects of it. Um, in React with components, the same way um, with class components, similar to class components in Ember, uh, you would often use things like did insert element will destroy and React its component will mount, component did mount, component will unmount to set up side effects. So let's say you wanted to set up a subscription to a WebSocket. And in Ember, you might do that in an initializer of your app. You know, I think I did that in that app I was working on. Or you might do it in like an init function on the application controller or something like that. But recently, you would probably try to encapsulate it in a component where you can just drop a component in. Let's say you have like you're building Slack. And once you click on a channel, maybe when the route activates you know, in the template, you could just say like subscribe to like channel equals model.id. And that's a really cool thing because um, that actually solves some of the same problems that Hooks does. So because you're doing it in the template, which is what we always talk about, it's inherently declarative, which means um, it's it's also reactive. So if you were to do something in like, let's say you did something in channel, route, activate, um, or set up controller, and you say new WebSocket to backend with channel ID model that ID. Now the user navigates from general to water cooler and you didn't, you wrote that code and set up controller, which happened when the route was first entered. But when you switch the model, that code doesn't run again. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you just by design happen to put it in a component that says subscribe to channel, you know, curly curly subscribe to channel ID equals model that ID in the template. You actually just took care of the case where the model changes, yep. which is pretty awesome. Yep. Like that's really cool. Yeah, you get that declarative rendering. Now it does, so maybe this is where you get into like the hook stuff, but it does leak a little where if you do it in did insert element and the element, the component stays rendered. Yes. Now so, you have to adjust for it in like did receive address. Yes, so this is exactly, exactly the point. So this is, that works assuming it's a well-behaved component. It's a well-implemented component. And so what I mean by that is you're at least a little bit better off just by running this code in setup controller because now when the ID changes, model dot 
changes, model.id changes, which means at least the component will always have the latest ID. Yep. So if the component did something like renders the ID in a template, boom, you're good. Um, or let's say you were using an observer and you had it as a function of observes ID. Boom, that will always run. Of course, we don't use observers much these days in Ember. What we do is we set up things and did insert element and tear them down and will destroy. Um, so to your point, you get the new ID, but if you didn't write anything to handle it, then you're you know up the creek or whatever. But the refactoring is nice because it leaves the caller the same. So the cool thing is at least you nailed the API on the calling side. So now what you do is did receive adders and you count for the fact, oh, did the ID change? If so, let's unsubscribe from the previous channel and subscribe to the new one. And then on will destroy, you unsubscribe. So um, from the calling side, that's really cool to be able to do that. Now, basically one of the benefits of using um, the way hooks are designed, in particular the use effect hook for this kind of thing, is that it nudges you to not forget those things. So I could probably open up Ember Maps code base and find some components that do something and don't properly update when the data changes or properly um, tear down an effect that was created. You know, probably. Uh, 100%. Because because there's a lot of times you would just never even know it. There's nothing about the tooling telling you it. There's no work. There may may not even be a user flow that exposes the bug that's possible in your application. And yet there's a, there is a cleanup that hasn't happened. Exactly. I think that that is a big point that, there are some apps we build where you render a component. Those like there is no way for that. Let's say you're in the application template. Yeah. You render the component, set something up. Like technically, the thing should have a cleanup, even though it's used in the application template, which is always rendered. What about the first time you reuse that in another place? Right, you move it from there, exactly. and it needs to be cleaned up. So you have a welcome screen where it's not rendered. Now you have a bug. So part of the argument for the design of hooks is that fundamentally they are going to nudge you in a better direction. And this actually leads me to one of the things we had on the list, which was Mixonic. Uh, Matthew Beal had a great tweet where he said, basically saying, senior developers, if you're mentoring juniors and they open a PR and their PR is technically correct, but you disagree with the style or the convention or um, how they've implemented it, don't critique the style. Um, go ahead and merge it and realize that that is a notch and the belt of a badly designed API. It's like a, it's like a tick in the corner of like this is where one area where the API fell down because it allowed for multiple styles of coding. And that's basically, I thought that was a great tweet and I agree with it completely. And I think that that is basically the same argument that the hooks folks are making, which is because yes, you can wrap up imperative APIs into declarative components, but it requires that you be diligent and um, there, there's often no feedback that you've done it the wrong way. So for example, with a use effect hook, um, you would on render call use effect, you would subscribe to the channel ID inside of the function. And if you call subscribe and then you have to pass in an ID, first of all, um, just by writing that in a use effect, that effect is going to run every time the component is rendered. And so you actually will always have an up-to-date subscription. Not only just because it's going to rerun when the channel ID changes, it's actually going to rerun whenever the component changes, no matter what, even completely due to unrelated state. Yep. But by design, um, it does that so that you do not encounter those bugs. Now, what you kind of immediately discover next is like, wait, I want to unsubscribe and subscribe to this channel on every render. That's crazy. So that's where like the second argument to use effect comes in, which is an array of dependencies similar to computer properties in Ember. And you can, um, once you pass that in, um, first you can pass in an empty array, which tells React to only run this effect one time. But if within the effect you have something that says channel.subscribe model.id, it's gonna lint error and say, you didn't pass in model.id as a dependency because your effect depends on that. So that's already catching that bug where you didn't write this, did receive adders in the Ember component. I have a question. Is there something about the way hooks are designed and the way use effect works that this is easier to lint against that we, where you couldn't lint, lint against this in um, component did update mm -hmm. and component component did, will update and component did, did, did receive adders or whatever. Yeah. Component will update and did receive adders, I guess would be the Ember equivalent. Right. 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 Um, well, I think it's the fact that you don't know 
what 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 can you do and, and did receive adders? You can do anything you want. You're not necessarily creating a side effect. Right. So the whole point is that use effect is for side effects so they can make an assumption that any code you run inside of there depends on that state. Whereas okay. like you Okay, because I could do stuff and did receive adders that might not even create a side effect. Yeah. Or might not create a side effect that I need to update. Right. And so they don't like it might be silly to warn me about those things. Right. And now did receive adders does run every time any attribute changes. Um, so I guess if you set something up there, it would run every time the component effectively re-renders. But um, yeah, it's just not how we really use it. It's not really the mental model for it. Um, you, there's lots of different things you could do there. And um, so I think it's just a more constrained API, I guess I would say. Yeah. Yes. I mean, yes. So um, that's really cool. And then there's one last part, which is like unsubscribing, which you do by returning a function. So React actually won't help you out here in a sense. It's up to you because there's such a thing as an effect that doesn't need cleanup. So I just thought that was a really interesting takeaway from the design of hooks, which is how can we make sure folks um, make sure that their effects are synchronized with the state that they depend on and will re-trigger if the state they depend on changes and we can provide linting errors for them. And, um, and then if you return a cleanup function, it will get properly cleaned up as well. Um, it's like the authoring experience is one thing. When I first heard about hooks and saw them, I was like, okay, it's the calling experience because now it's like, instead of having to render a component that might have to nest its children within it, you can just call yes. use subscription, passing in model ID, and you're not affecting the, the nesting of your render function. But now it's also, I'm also seeing that the benefit falls on the authoring side because it helps you write less buggy uh, components or hooks that have side effects. So it's pretty cool. And just like a lesson in API design. Again, tying it back to Matt's tweet. um, Like it makes me think of libraries that we write. And, you know, if basically, and I already realized I did this to some extent, but it's just good to hear it out loud. It's like people ask you, oh, how can I do this with Mirage? Or I'm doing it like this. Is this right? It's like, oh yeah, some people do like this. Some people do like that. I do it like this. It's like, can you design an API that actually makes sure there's only one right way to do it? And obviously there's a balance there. You don't, if you don't understand the problem space well enough, you could lock people into a bad abstraction without an escape hatch and escape hatches are good. But you know, hooks is a very interesting, like fundamentally different API for writing declarative components basically. And I just think it's really interesting. Nice. It's really good to hear your your experience actually writing these things. Mm-hmm. I think that's a lot. Yeah. yeah. So I remember we talked about this before. It was like, we didn't oh, know how, do we, how do we use these? Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's, it's awesome to hear that other side as well. Definitely. I will say the part I got confused on, and I don't know if this is helpful for other people or thinking about Ember and stuff, but the, the effect word I think is a bit of a misnomer because, well, it's either a misnomer or a loaded term because if I told you like what's a side effect in a JavaScript app, what would you say? Uh, anything that happens outside of the component I'm writing. So I would say like console.log is like mm-hmm. technically a side effect. Right. But console.log doesn't need to be wrapped in use effect, right? More realistic example might be like you might say network request. Like, oh, yeah, that sounds yeah. like a, a, a side effect. Okay, yeah, something that can change state outside of this component. <laughs> that's pretty like, good. No, I'm I'm like I was trying to for see. The no, that's good. I was actually trying to think if that's valid. My mental model was like, yeah, network requests definitely are side effects, right? It's a side effect. Um, maybe anything async would be one possible answer. It's like a side effect because, like, it's just, it's like, async it's not synchronous it's not like it's out of band it's um in the ember concurrency lingo it's like unstructured you know it's it's not encapsulated by the life cycle of this thing necessarily because it's async so if you go into use effect thinking about that um and they the docs even say like oh things like network requests so it's like great i need to render my component and get some data from a server so use effect right that's you would be right okay great now i need to like create a to-do and save it that's an effect no like it's not an effect. So that 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 seems hard to tease apart because so, yeah. they're both net, at the end of the day they're both network requests. Yeah. One's a fetch, one's a post. So you actually can write the post as a side effect of the of some state being changed where like you create save and let's say you set some state that's like 
intend to save post true. Oh, okay. And then you have a side effect that's like, if I ever see intend to save post true, then trigger this network request. So this would be like having an Ember Ember observer. It's that basically like an observer. It's basically like an observer. It seems, seems bad. So basically use effect is almost like an observer where you're the, really the mental model you want is not like, is this thing a sync or is it a network request or is it what I normally think of as a side effect? It's does something need to happen as a result of rendering that's not rendering. So when you boot a React app or Ember app, you render things to the screen in the form of elements to the DOM. If anything else needs to happen as a result of that, it's a side effect. Wait, 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 wait. it's a use effect side effect? Any impa- yes, it's a use effect side effect. But then why, but, but submitting a new to-do would qualify as that, wouldn't no, it? No, because it's not, it's the result of uh, action, like a user action. It's not like something that rendered uh, on the uh, screen uh, uh, that it's caused not, it. It's not the result of the render. Exactly. It's, it's not a like result, triggered that's by like the, the result of the, the submitting the form. I think it's close. Yes, exactly. And I think can it's, be handled in a, a handle submit or whatever. Exactly. Which is why you can understand why you could model it as an effect. Like if saving did a, a loading spinner, then you could say, oh, if I ever see a loading spinner here, here's the effect I need to run. But that's like, a little unnatural in my opinion. It seems like a lot of indirection. Yeah, a lot of indirection. Hard to debug. Feels like Ember observers, which in all the problems that came there, which is like if I have three observers that run off of is, you know, the spinner, now I don't know which order they're in. Like I don't have, it's the whole reason we moved away from like two-way binding and observers yep. and opted in for like a one-way data flow thing that had more control. Um, so that is a similar kind of thing where you can have multiple use effects that are synchronized with the same piece of state via that dependency array. Um, but now like, especially if they're async, then like it could make your program more unpredictable. So, um, yeah, it's pretty interesting stuff. But, um, as far as like the case of like fetching data, also like they kind of said fetching data is kind of fundamentally different from like posting data, which is kind of interesting. Like on the one hand, you're like, no, they're the same. They're both network requests on the other. It's like, Oh, actually when you think about these categories, one is a result of a render and one is like a result of a fundamentally of like a user event. Yeah. I'm, so, I'm rendering this component that needs this data. Yeah. Therefore, like I've declared my data needs, therefore I'm going to go fetch them. Yeah. And yeah, the render is actually the thing that triggered that. So I, I, yeah, that's pretty interesting. Really nice. Right. And like also the data fetching component that we played with in Ember, it's like a load records component. It's not like a save records component. It actually kind of doesn't really make sense in, in some ways. Like now you could have like a resource component that yields an action or something like that. And has some state associated with that, which I try what was trying to do with hooks basically like is saving, but it does in some ways, if you apply this to the Ember template stuff, like load records makes a lot of sense and like save records doesn't out of the box. Yeah. It's like you know? if, if is saving render this like save record component yeah. and it's like, yeah, that, that doesn't feel good. And like actions feel great in Ember. Like when you have an action that's just like model that validate, then model that save, then tra- transition to like, I've never felt a need to pull that into like a template necessarily. Right. Whereas data loading, it's like, all we want to do is get into a template because it needs to synchronize with state, like the URL and like things that the user is doing. Awesome. Awesome. So that's a really good little test there. Like I, this thing should be pulled into a component because it's a result of rendering this component. Yeah. yeah really cool so i need to keep we need to keep thinking about that but like maybe that's a good actual like maybe you don't need components for everything like a load component i'm convinced is a great idea but maybe like the other stuff and this is why i love having services in ember that within an action i've never used an action i've never wired up an action in ember and felt like i am missing a primitive right yes you have like an action even if it's like a complex action whereas like rendering is like super complex and you like you wish you had like um uh, na- yield blocks like named blocks you wish you had c- better composition patterns but like an action is actually pretty pretty good right yes yep it's like an action does some things like set some state and then now you're back to the world of rendering which is like the main part of the problem i guess right yep um yep. anyway it's pretty interesting though so um yeah it's just cool to seeing the patterns carry across the paradigms like and folks thinking similarly about these things um pretty interesting stuff I made like a, uh, we have to get going here pretty soon, but I made a, um, I wanted to be able to resort the things it's hard and react as well. So just, <laughs> just, you can sleep well knowing it's, I was like, Oh, I'm in this 
blissful world, right? Where there's 30 times as many developers working on this. So clearly there's going to be a drop in solutions. Oof. Rough. Reordering. Rough. Rough. And I thought it was me. And then I confirmed it was not me. So <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of vindication there. Maybe we need, just need to wait for some better APIs in the browser. But yeah. All right. Well, enough rambling for now. Um, thanks for joining us. And um, I'm going to be reaching out to some folks soon and try to get some interviews on, in particular, folks who have worked with both Ember and React because I'm just very interested by this. and uh, Or Ember and then I use Vue. And I would love to just talk about some of these higher level things. So hopefully we'll have an interview coming up soon on that. Nice. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. See ya.